2: Memories are subjective. We all see the same sights, we all hear the same sounds, and we all smell the same smells. But burdened by a limited capacity, our minds only remember the smallest of fragments, all of which are distorted by time, bias, emotion and trauma. The simplest of details may imperceptibly change, Colours, shapes, sizes, names, dates, times, and even locations. To the point where two people sitting side by side in the same room at the same time may see the same event in a radically different way as their brains edit that brief moment to suit their own perspective. Unconsciously, we all do it. And yet, we all believe that our memories are real. In 1943, just two miles west, and less than one year after the horror of the Blackout Ripper, a second serial sexual sadist stalked the bomb-damaged streets of London. Strangely, they were both in uniforms. They both struck during the blackout, and they both appeared as kind, pleasant and caring. But unlike the Blackout Ripper, whose insatiable lust for sex and death left four women dead and two lucky to be alive, this serial killer was older, wiser and calmer. Seen as an upstanding pillar of society, a happily married man and a decorated war hero who lived locally at 10 Villington Place. Although he was known as Mr Christie, to those he liked... He preferred they call him Reg. And yet, in a reign of terror, which would last not a few days, but a whole decade, eight women would disappear, one man would be executed, and no one would suspect him. You may think you know this story, as many variations of it have been told, but with much of the evidence destroyed, there is no definitive account of what happened. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspective. So what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile and I present to you part one of the full, true and untold story of the other side of 10 Rillington Place. Today, I'm standing at 110A Ladbroke Grove, at the farthest fringes of London's West End. Three miles west of Soho, one mile north of Hyde Park, and within spitting distance of Portobello Road, Notting Hill, and that infamous blue front door, Owned by the film's writer, who subsequently, following the film's success, sold the house for oodles of cash. Clever man. Now called the Flowered Corner, 110A Ladbroke Grove is a four story brown brick Victorian terraced house nestled on the northeast corner of the crossroads of Lancaster Road and Ladbroke Grove. With three flats above, the ground floor is a floristry shop a single bright spot on a dirty, dusty street, where the sweet smell of nectar is strangled by the greasy stench of chicken shops. The soothing colours of tulips are smothered by the choking fumes of trucks, buses and tube trains. And the harmonious tranquility of fresh pansies was once, as witnessed by myself, sullied by a rather displeased youth cussing from a beaten-up banger. With his music blaring, no lights on, a no windscreen, who was smoking a spliff, wearing a fuck the police t-shirt, and bemoaning two straight-faced coppers by complaining, why are you police always hassling me? Back in the 1940s, 110A Ladbroke Grove was known as David Griffin's Refreshment Room, a simple cafe serving standard British staples like tea, coffee, toast, and fry-ups for a reasonable price in a poverty-stricken area. And yet, it was here, on the 21st of August, 1943, that a 21-year-old girl called Ruth First, who had already escaped her certain death, would meet her new murderer. Ruth Marguerite Christina I was born on the 2nd of August 1922, the second of three children to Ludwig, an Austrian landscape painter, and Frederica, a Jewish housewife, with an older brother, Gottfried, and a younger brother, Gabriel. Raised in the middle-class affluence of Zurich, Switzerland's largest city, Ruth's upbringing was peaceful, happy and joyous. And being a well-educated girl from a very liberal and unpolitical family, she embraced her life, her rights and her freedom. Eager to become a nurse, although a little bit shy, Ruth was always studious, intelligent and patient. Having inherited her father's slim, awkward frame, being a few inches taller than most girls, she always stood out. And as a fastidiously neat girl, with pale but easily flushed skin, brown but eternally sad eyes, and a neat bob of dark straight hair, a coloring passed down from her mother's Hungarian ancestry. Although Ruth looked typically Jewish, she wasn't. Plagued with minor complaints from birth, like a hereditary blood disorder, which often left her weak, buckled knees, which kept her excluded from sports, and terrible teeth, which left her in chronic pain. As a beloved girl from a well-to-do family, able to afford doctors, medicine, and fortuitously a metal crown fitted to her upper right molar, life could have been a lot worse. In need of fresh air, good light, and striking landscapes to paint, Her father Ludwig moved the family to a spacious villa on the edge of a forest in the picturesque Austrian spa town of Bad Voslau, famed for its lush vineyards and rolling hills, 23 miles southwest of his hometown of Vienna. Being surrounded by her family, Ruth was happy, safe and loved. And although this affluent and bustling market town was home to just over 9,000 people. By the late 1930s, many homes would become vacant, many people would vanish, and for the first time in its history, the population of Bad Voslau would rapidly shrink. On the 15th of September, 1935, with the National Socialist German Workers' Party having risen to power, fueled by rabid anti-Semitism, the Reichstag established the Nuremberg Laws. Its purpose? To create an Aryan state and eradicate anyone who wasn't pure blood, whether black, gay, romani, disabled or Jewish. The Nazis classified a Jew as anyone who practiced Judaism, identified as Jewish, had married a Jew, and regardless of whether they were a practicing Roman Catholic, as many German Jews had been since the 19th century, if any person had traceable Jewish ancestry, they were subject to the Nuremberg laws and regarded as a Mischling or half-blood. For the next two years, With all five members of the first family being Mischlings, they were all denied any rights, freedoms, and being treated as an untermensch, German for subhuman, Ruth and her family were forced to undertake menial and demeaning jobs, one of which included scrubbing road surfaces with acid, which left Ruth's palms badly scarred forever. On the 12th of March, 1938, as the Nazis annexed Austria, all Jewish-owned properties were seized, all personal belongings were sold, and having been forcibly separated, the fate of the first family was unknown. Some hid, others fled, and whereas the rest were rounded up and transported to uncertain fates. For the first time ever, Ruth was alone, homeless, and scared. She was just 16 years old. From the 1st of October 1938, for eight months, Ruth hid in the basement room at Numersrei Nestroplatz in Nazi-controlled Vienna, never knowing if her family were alive or dead. With fate smiling upon her, Ruth was issued with a passport, and on the 8th of June 1939, just three months before the start of World War II, being hungry and exhausted, Ruth fled to England. And yet, having escaped the horrors of the Nazi regime, a life of poverty, persecution, and her certain execution, it was here in the safety of West London, that Ruth first would end up dead. She were Austrian, I believe. A nice girl, plain but sad-looking. I met her in the summer of 43, in a cafe in Labrugurve. Got herself into a dreadful mess, she had. Awful. So I gave her a few shillings, you know, to help her along. That's all. It seemed like the right thing to do. And that consequently, this country is at war with Germany. On the 1st of September 1939, Britain declared war on Germany. A brutal six-year conflict, which left homes decimated, families displaced, countless casualties maimed, crippled and traumatized. And by the end of it all, at least 11 million people would be dead. One of whom was Ruth. Having just turned 17, Ruth was still a child. An impressionable young girl from a foreign land who was scared and lost in a big strange city, with a limited grasp of English, Apache education, weak legs, bad blood, and sore teeth, with no skills, no friends, and no family. And although she was thankful to be safe, missing her mother's hug and her father's love, she was alive, but also so alone. The last four years of her life were solitary and chaotic, and as much as she strived, she struggled. Initially, she lived with her guarantor, Miss Edith Bessie Willis, in a delightful white terraced cottage at 92 Oakwood Road, in the very Jewish, northwest London neighbourhood of Golders Green. But with Edith being a prim and proper lady, and Ruth being a distraught teenager, With scars on her hands, an emptiness in her heart, and unimaginable horrors still plaguing her mind, they never got on. Still seeking to fulfil her dreams, Ruth enrolled as a student nurse at St. Gabriel's Home in the seaside town of Westgate-on-Sea, and upon graduation, with a bright career in her sights, Ruth found work at the Santa Claus Children's Home in Highgate, and life had hope. And then, as an Austrian exile who had legally entered England, even though she was just a young girl, being unsure whether she was a Nazi sympathiser, Ruth's newly adopted country had her transferred to the Hutchinson internment camp in Douglas, a cold, barren, and inescapable prison on the remote Isle of Man in the middle of the Irish Sea surrounded by bare walls, locked doors and barbed wire. Six months later, having been deemed not a threat by the British government, Ruth regained her freedom. But with her job gone, her reputation ruined and her life in tatters. With German bombers obliterating every city, Ruth was evacuated from London and once again uprooted to the windswept wilds of Ellswick in Lancashire, where she knew no one. And still, her life would only get worse. Half a year of enforced captivity had taken its toll, and whereas once this sweet, polite and joyous girl had been replaced by a fiery, moody mess, with tatty clothes, sullen eyes and unwashed skin... Looking like a ragged orphan, which she knew she most likely was, Ruth had become trapped in a mental fog. With a doctor diagnosing her as severely depressed, although the capital wasn't safe, for the sake of her mental well being, Ruth was moved back to the familiarity of London. London was a city in ruins. After eight months of sustained aerial bombardment, having failed to pummel the proud populace into submission, with the Luftwaffe being unrelenting, the bombings continued. An estimated 43,000 civilians would die during the air raids. As with a daily risk of being killed by an incendiary bomb, a doodlebug or a V1 rocket, To many Londoners, death was a part of life. Houses would vanish overnight, sometimes terraces, and even whole streets. And with its occupants being obliterated by blast waves or incinerated by fire, the only evidence that a family ever existed was when the special constables pulled bodies from the debris, sometimes alive, sometimes dead, Sometimes Sometimes whole, whole, injured, injured or disfigured. And yet, sometimes, sometimes, all all that was left was a foot, a hand, or a head. Nasty business it was. But in wartime, it wasn't unheard of for someone to simply vanish. Being eager to rebuild a small semblance of life... Having endured rationing, blackouts, and the limitations of her refugee status, Ruth ploughed on, hoping to make something of herself, and God rest them, her parents proud. In December 1941, whilst living in a small but pleasant lodging, studying for her return to nursing, and working as a waitress at the exclusive Mayfair Hotel in Stratton Street, W1, just shy of Piccadilly Circus. Ruth met and fell in love with a Greek Cypriot waiter called Anastasio Isidorin. A few months later, being rosier about the cheeks, full around the hips, and with a noticeable bump, Ruth discovered that she was about to become a mum. And with the little miracle of a baby girl, Blossoming in her belly, having prayed nightly to the Lord, and him finally hearing her cries, he blessed her with one more miracle. Frederica and Ludwig I, her mother and father, weren't dead. Having fled the horrors of the Nazi regime and boarded a boat, her parents were alive, well, and living in the safety of East 57th Street in New York City, where they hoped Ruth would join them. But being heavily pregnant, desperately broke, and very recently single, in her state, Ruth knew that she couldn't. And as fate would have it, she wouldn't. As a young girl with weak legs, bad blood, poor teeth and frequent bouts of depression, life was hard. As an unskilled and partially educated female in the 1940s, life was harder. As a wartime refugee of Austrian-Jewish parentage living in London, life was even harder, but also being an unmarried Expectant mother of no fixed abode, with no job, money or immediate family. Life was impossible. So on the 9th of October 1942, in the West End Lane, home for unmarried mothers in Hampstead, being alone, scared and desperate, Ruth gave birth to a baby girl, who she named Christina. Moments later, her baby was taken away. She never saw her again. From the end of 1942 to the middle of 1943, having moved from job to job, lodging to lodging, leaving a trail of unpaid bills, as she slowly sunk back into depression, Ruth's life returned to chaos. On the 25th of May, 1943, Frederica received the last letter that Ruth would ever write. In it, she stated that she was working the night shift in a local munitions factory, and reassured her mother that she was fine, well, and she sent her love. On the 29th of June, 1943, Ruth quit her job as a machinist at John Balding & Sons a munitions factory at the back of Bond Street station. And although she was always tired, tardy, and sickly, barely working 20 hours of her 40-hour week, her co-workers believed that once again she was pregnant. On Saturday the 21st of August 1943, at little after lunchtime, Ruth was seen by her landlady. Julie Theresa Walker leaving her flat at 41 Oxford Gardens as she walked one road south towards Ladbroke Grove Tube Station wearing a very distinctive fake leopard skin coat. That was the last confirmed sighting of Ruth First. Believing she'd absconded without paying her rent, her landlady reported her missing ten days later. As one of many missing refugees, her details appeared in the police gazette, but nobody searched for her. And as one of thousands of innocent civilians believed to have been killed during the aerial bombardment, the mysteries surrounding her death wouldn't be investigated until a decade later. She was Austrian, I believe. A nice girl, plain but sad-looking. But in wartime, it wasn't unheard of for someone to simply vanish. After this moment, only one person witnessed her alive. A special constable, working out of the Harrow Road police station who'd been commended twice by the police commissioner, and as a local man who was moral, teetotal and charitable, was widely regarded as an upstanding pillar of society, a happily married man and a decorated war hero. The special constable's name was John Reginald Halliday Christie, known as Mr Christie. But I prefer it if you call me Reg. It was Saturday lunchtime. As per usual, although small and snug, David Griffin's refreshment room at 110A Ladbroke Grove was busy. In the corner, Ruth and Reg sat side by side, as they had done several times before. Ruth found it difficult to make friends. But with Reg being so approachable, kind and caring, even though he and his wife Ethel had no children of their own, the word which best described him was fatherly. As a slightly built man, twice her age, but the same height and weight as Ruth, Reg seemed like a harmless sort. And being almost totally bald, except for a thin crown of hair above his ears, wearing thick-lensed horn-rimmed spectacles, which magnified his soft brown eyes, A set of false teeth, which being too big, sometimes slipped when he spoke. And talking in a barely audible whisper, having been injured in a mustard gas attack, whilst bravely serving his country during the Great War, although he looked a little odd, she could see that Reg was a sweet and caring man who wouldn't harm a fly. Ruth and Reg sat together, him having brought her a tea and toast as he listened to her woes, his hand tenderly touching hers. But it wasn't hard and coarse, but a little limp and damp. Got herself into a dreadful mess she had. Awful. Being 10 days away from failing to pay her rent, once again, Ruth risked eviction. Being unemployed, she couldn't afford a checkup on her weak legs, her bad blood, her chronic teeth, or the new baby, which was probably on the way. And as a deeply moral man, who never used prostitutes myself, he'd often turn a blind eye to a good woman who'd fallen on hard times and had struggled to make ends meet. So I gave her a few shillings, you know, to help her along. That's all. It seemed like the right thing to do. Having visited his home twice before, and kept this special constable company on his beat, on Tuesday, the 24th of August 1943, Ruth entered Rillington Place. A grey, featureless dead end, with ten three story Victorian terraced houses on both sides, with no trees, plants, or front gardens. And like it was cutting the street dead in its tracks, stood a ten foot high brick wall behind which tube trains thundered by. Keen to collect those 10 shillings, Ruth knocked on the black wooden door of 10 Rillington Place. First to greet her was Judy, Reggie's overexcitable brown mongrel. But once again, there was no sign of his wife Ethel, who was up north visiting her family in Halifax. The hallway was thin, drab and dark. To the left was a set of stairs which led up to the other tenants' flats. And to the right was the ground floor flat which belonged to the Christie's. With a front room, a bedroom and a kitchen. With a neat little garden and a communal wash house and lavatory out back. So with tea brewing on the hob, Reg ushered Ruth along the thin hallway... Into the kitchen. Having no central heating, limited electricity, and illuminated by Victorian gaslights, which bathed the pokey kitchen in a flickering yellow glow, as Reg perched awkwardly in front of the alcove on a small round stool, Ruth leaned back in his one good seat. By good, it was really just a wooden deck chair draped in a grey blanket and held together by what should have been six lengths of rope. But as she sat there, supping a nice cuppa and getting toasty in front of the wood-burning range, Ruth was cosy. For a while they chatted, as the older man imparted his wisdom, knowledge and fatherly advice to the inexperienced girl. But it was as she stared into his soft brown eyes, longing for love and missing a man's touch, that being overcome with lust, Ruth started to undress. She were madly in love with me. Christie was a happily married man. He didn't do this sort of thing. But as she slowly undid the buttons on her fake leopard skin coat, revealing a young slim body with a full heaving bust, being a woman with strong sexual urges, Ruth led Reg into the bedroom. She were completely naked, lying on my bed, wanting me to have intercourse with her. And as much as Reg reminded her that he was married, she wanted us three to team up, to go away somewhere together. I wouldn't do that. But not wishing to offend her, I got on the bed and had sex with her. Of the many statements he gave, all are inconsistent. Sometimes he'd be pedantic about the smallest and most insignificant details. I don't recall. And yet, he'd be impossibly vague about whole events. I can't be certain. It were a while ago, you know. But when asked, where, when, how and why he murdered Ruth first, he would simply state, I don't recall. Except to say, it were while I was having intercourse with her. I strangled her with a piece of rope. As the full weight of Reggie's spindly naked body bared down upon her, his putty white legs pressed tightly around her skinny thighs, trapping her legs. Being gripped in panic, fear, and unable to breathe, let alone scream, the more her trembling hands grasped at the taut rope, which slowly crushed her throat, the tighter he pulled it. As her soft, youthful skin turned a mottled shade of puce, as the blood vessels in her face swelled and ruptured as the tightening ligature forced her tongue to jut out of her mouth like it was trying to escape her silently screaming face as being in uncontrollable terror her shaking body expelled its last splash of urine and feces and as the capillaries in the whites of her eyes began to burst so they appeared almost black the last thing the Ruth saw wasn't the sweet smile of her baby daughter, the peaceful fields of her hometown of Bad Voslau, or Ludwig and Frederica first, her beloved parents, but the terrifying grimace of Reg Christie. As in his hands, he gripped both ends of the straining rope until her life drained away there she lay dead she looked more beautiful in death than in life I remember I gazed down at the still form of my first victim and experienced a strange peaceful thrill but his thrill was to be short-lived. Receiving a telegram that his wife would be home that evening, Reg dragged the naked corpse from the bedroom, along the communal corridor and into his front room, and under a large rug where, with a few floorboards loose after a plumber had repaired a leaky pipe, he hid Ruth's body. Ethel arrived home that night, and with fresh sheets on the bed, her brother Henry fast asleep just a few feet away, Reg having burned the clothes in a dustbin and buried the body in the back garden. She was none the wiser, of the sex, the death, the body, or her husband, the murderer. And although John Reginald Halliday Christie made several vague statements, when asked in court, Mr Christie, was this the first person you had killed? He would reply, I think so, I don't recall. 21 year old Ruth Marguerite Christina First was just a girl with weak legs, bad blood, and painful teeth, who somehow had escaped persecution, anti-Semitism, and her extermination in a concentration camp at the hands of the Nazis. she had endured hardship, poverty, hunger, bombings, imprisonment, abandonment, and the loss of her family, her home, her baby, and finally, her life. But being listed as only missing, not dead, and certainly not murdered, Ruth first would become just one of thousands of innocent civilians, believed to have been killed in the wartime bombing raids. She was Austrian I believe, a nice girl, plain but sad looking, but in wartime it wasn't unheard of for someone to simply vanish. Trust. A firmly held belief that a person is reliable, truthful and honest. It can't be faked, traded or brought. It can only be earned. And unlike any greeting, gossip or pleasantry, trust takes time, patience and tests before we let anyone into our confidence and open up to our innermost secrets. Trust is reserved solely for friends, family and in rare exceptions, strangers, like firemen, policemen, doctors, nurses, soldiers, and security. But without a bloodline, a bond, or a uniform, trust requires a kind face, a caring voice, and a calm demeanor. In 1942, the blackout ripper struck, killing four women, having gained their trust. He was tall, charming, and handsome, with a crisp RAF uniform, bright blue eyes and an easy smile. Whereas Reg Christie was not. He was short, scrawny, balding and bespectacled. A strange man in a crumpled old suit with an odd little whisper, false teeth that slipped and no longer being a special constable, no uniform. But what he lacked physically He made up with mentally, meaning that for a whole decade his killing spree would go undetected. All because he was kind, caring and worst of all, patient. In August 1943, Reg Christie murdered 21-year-old Ruth First in a fit of spontaneous lust. One year on, with his urge unsated and his carnal lust swelling, Having learned from his mistakes, this murder would be planned to perfection. And with his next victim in his sights, he needed to gain her trust. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspectives. So what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. And I present to you part two of the full, true, and untold story of the other side of Ten Rillington Place. Today, I'm standing on the A40 on Western Avenue in Perivale, a heavily industrialised part of West London, far from the seediness of Soho, but in an area absolutely vital to our story. As a chaotic dual carriageway connecting the capital city to the Welsh coastal town of Fishguard, you may think you don't know the A40. But with a small stretch of it also being called Oxford Street, the A40 passes by the Denmark Place Fire, Freddie Mills' suicide, Jacques Tratz's homicide, Mary Pickwood's abortion, Abd Al-Naif's assassination, several locations of the Blackout Ripper and as it exits Edgware Road to become the Paddington flyover, the A40 overlooks what remains of 10 Rillington Place. Situated 9.3 miles west of Soho, as one of London's busiest roads, Western Avenue is noisy, dirty and chaotic. As with the deafening thunder of trains, The choking fumes of trucks and the ear-splitting scream as jumbo jets roar out of Heathrow. Amidst the thick smog of swirling dust, nasally it's a very confusing place. As being enveloped by factories whose chimneys burp out sweet scents of biscuits, curry and beer. Often it's interspersed by a caustic cloud of chemicals, burnt rubber and sewage. Although I'm standing directly opposite the infamous Hoover Building, a stunning Grade 2 Art Deco factory built in stark white concrete with shimmering green glass, the exact location of the place I'm looking for is unknown, as what was left has been entirely demolished. Now occupied by the Greenford Premier Inn, a budget hotel where tired salesmen forego the arduous two-hour commute to their wife and kids, and instead sink a few suds, scoff a steak, pay for a porn film by mistake, and mysteriously book a double room for themselves and their daughter, who visits her daddy for just 58 minutes. But originally, sat on this site was Ultra Electrics Limited, a radio manufacturer whose war work was so secretive that to confuse any Nazi saboteurs, they incorrectly listed their address as being both in Acton and Park Royal, almost three miles east. And yet, in the summer of 1944, it was here that a shy, bright, but lonely lady called Muriel Eadie was lured into the confidence of a delivery driver, who had secrets of his own. Muriel Amelia Edie was born on the fourteenth of October, nineteen twelve, in Canning Town, East London, a dark, squalid, and impoverished district on the north side bank of the River Thames. With a skyline chock full of belching chimneys, the sooty air thick with an acrid, soupy smog, the murky brown water fizzing with effluent, and surrounded by the endless cacophony of docks, cranes, and ironworks. This was no place to raise a child. But to Muriel, this was home. Muriel was born at No. 20 Barron Road in one of thousands of identical Victorian terraced houses built to serve the dock workers in the 1850s and later demolished in the slum clearance. Although tiny, it was home to their mother Fanny Louisa Eadie, five-year-old Reginald, three-year-old Ernest and Muriel. To Muriel and her siblings, Fanny was everything a doting single mother who struggled alone on a single income with three children. And although she was still married to William eady a sailor in the Merchant Navy who rarely, if reluctantly, returned home and was a father in name only, in the 1911 census it rightfully lists Fanny as head of the house. And although one of her babies was always sick, as raised amongst the sooty-choking gloom of Canning Town, Muriel suffered with asthma, adenoids and catarrh, which would plague her for the rest of her life. Being blessed with such a wonderful mother, Reginald, Ernest and Muriel thrived and survived. And then, in February 1918, as one of the deadliest pandemics swept across the globe, Killing close to 100 million people, having been struck down with deadly influenza, a virus for which there was no treatment or cure, Fanny Louisa Edie died in Poplar Hospital. Muriel was just six years old. Being distraught, what she wanted was a hug. What she needed was her mum. But what she got was William Eady, an unsmiling, uncaring stranger who, being gruff, rough and grumpy, only cared for the sea. And seeing these kids as nothing but a burden, he abandoned them. Three grieving children, all alone, scared and cruelly orphaned, were placed into care at the Hutton Poplar's residential home home for destitute children in Brentwood, where they would remain for most of their childhood. And as a shy girl, struggling for an ounce of love in a stern Victorian orphanage, with no mother to guide her, and fearing any father figure, in the six years she remained at Hutton Hall, feeling rejected, abandoned, and alone, Muriel became secretive, and retreated into isolation, trusting no one but herself. I knew I wanted her, the Edie woman, but she were different from the others, you know, quiet-like. So it had to be a really clever murder, much cleverer than the first. As a young girl, Muriel cut quite a sad figure as her flat feet scraped along the care home stone floor. Her shoulders slumped, her back hunched and the dark brown curls of her hair hiding her heartbroken eyes. And as the days dragged on, for fear of being abandoned again, this became her shield. Muriel was a ragged little mess, whose chest wheezed, whose nose sniffed and who rarely made a sound, except to emit a timid nasal squeak. After close to six years in care, being made to feel less like an abandoned child and more like a burden on the state. Aged 11, her father's sister-in-law, Ethel Suhami, asked to look after Muriel. This should have been her chance to bloom, to blossom, and to put the past of her fractured family behind her and start her life afresh by playing with some newfound pals and living in a sweet, semi-detached house on a peaceful tree-lined street at 48 Creswick Road in Acton, West London. And yet, although she liked to be called Aunt Ethel, she had no plans to become Muriel's new mum as a fastidiously neat, supremely strict and mealy-mouthed French widow. Being partially disabled, Ethel struggled to run a lodging house, which was home to five regular residents from the local police station, all of whom needed meals cooked, beds made, and uniforms ironed. What Ethel needed was a shy, silent servant, who would do as she was told, with her head down, her mouth closed, and would sleep in a box room under the stairs, working every hour of every day for no money, no rest and no thanks. Her servant was Muriel, and this became her life for the next 15 years. By 1939, Muriel was 27 years old. She was unmarried, uneducated and friendless. With no money, no social life, no love life, and being unwilling to trust the local doctor, her guitar began to plague her with headaches. Muriel had very little experience in life, and yet it was almost over. That April, whether as a blessing or a curse, Aunt Ethel died. And with no next of kin, the house was sold, the lodgers moved out, and Muriel was left penniless, homeless, and once again, abandoned. But finally being free, for the first time in a long while, Muriel started to live. A few months later, she was working as a laundry assistant at Pembroke College in the historic city of Cambridge, And although war had been declared and Europe was in chaos, for once Muriel had money, freedom and hope. And living in a shared lodging, she began to come out of her shell. By 1940, with the Blitz still a few months away, Muriel had moved back to London and was living at number 12 Roskill Road in Putney. A nice little terraced house on a neat little street owned by Martha Elizabeth Hooper, her mother's sister. But unlike dreaded old Aunt Ethel, Auntie Muriel was a sweet lady with a warm smile, a big heart and all-embracing hugs, who best of all reminded Muriel of her mum. By 1943, being bored of a life in domestic service, with millions of men being posted overseas to fight for king and country, new roles had opened up for women. So being eager to do her bit, Muriel began a career as an assembler where she learned how to build hydraulic pumps for aircraft and met her new best friend, Pat. By 1944, relishing her independence, Muriel's confidence had began to blossom. As guided by Pat, The two pals, who were described as being like two peas in a pod, became regulars at the Half Moon Public House on Lower Richmond Road, the Amusement Hall by Putney Bridge, and a dance hall called the Black and White Milk Bar on Putney High Street. And as her social life bloomed, Muriel had begun to date. Eager to expand her horizons, Pat put her best pal forward for a plum job. And being a skilled assembler, who was regarded as essential labour, making vital components for the war effort. On the 20th of April 1944, Muriel Eady began work at a recently built factory on Western Road. It was called Ultra Electrics. It was a good job at a nice firm for a steady wage and a bright future. And with her confidence at an all-time high, Muriel had began to make a few new friends. One of whom was a softly spoken former special constable, who in the months ahead would meticulously plan her death. I were medically trained, you know, in the army. So my knowledge of medicine made it possible for me to talk, convincingly, about sickness. She believed I could cure her. With ultra-electrics producing over 1,000 radio sets a day for civilian and military service, as well as radio equipment for one of Britain's best wartime multi-strike aircraft, Work was busy, but rewarding. In staggered shifts of 15 minutes, a multitude of machinists, assemblers, checkers, packers and office staff descended on the factory's canteen, mingling by the tea urn, scrimmaging for Chelsea buns and jostling for space on the benches. Muriel was one face in a sea of 1,500, all identically dressed in oily overalls black boots and hairnets. And yet it was here, over a nice warm cuppa, that she got chatting to a lorry driver from the dispatch department called John Reginald Halliday Christie. I prefer it if you call me Wrench. The cruelty of her lost childhood had taught Muriel never to trust anyone, so experience should have warned her to steer clear of Christie but as a blossoming wallflower with a bright future ahead. As they chatted, she began to enjoy his company. To Muriel, Reg was a happily married man, 24 years to be precise, a former special constable, commended twice, and a decorated war hero, awarded the British War and Victory Medal. With a badly crumpled suit, thick-lensed spectacles and false teeth which slipped when he smiled. He didn't look sinister, he looked silly. So why she liked him, we may never know. But being just slightly older than Muriel, and named Reginald, perhaps this harmless man reminded the lost child within her of happier times with her own big brother. And with that, he began to gain her trust. I knew I wanted her, the Edie woman. But she were different from the others. You know, quiet-like. So it had to be a really clever murder. Much cleverer than the first. Christie would later claim that the murder of Ruth first was unplanned. A spontaneous act of lust on a desperate and possibly pregnant woman who he had lured to his home with a gift of 10 shillings. Whereas Muriel was independent, self-sufficient and guarded. With a good job, a solid wage, a stable home, a busy social life, a best friend called Pat, and it is believed a boyfriend called Ernest. Five years prior, Muriel's life was a mess. But now, she didn't need anything from anyone. Christy hadn't killed in a year, and with the police suspecting that Ruth was simply one of thousands of unidentified bodies or body parts, which littered the city's bomb craters, having been blasted to bits by any number of aerial bombardments, the evidence of his evil crime lay undisturbed in a shallow grave in his back garden. But seeing Muriel, knowing Muriel, and liking Muriel, as those same dark urges swelled, he knew that he wanted her and that she would be next. But without a way in, he would need to be patient. Over the next few months, he played the part of a trusted friend, inviting Muriel and her boyfriend to his home to meet his wife to chat over tea and cake, and even to make a beforesome to the flicks. It made a nice change for Reg and Ethel to have company, as although they were a nice couple, they were rarely close, choosing to shower any affection on their dog, Judy, rather than each other. And as pleasant as the charade was, it solved one big problem, only to open up another. Muriel liked Reg, She trusted him and she was comfortable in his home, but now he needed to get her alone. In September 1944, tragedy struck when a high explosive bomb fell on a packed air raid shelter killing everyone inside, one of whom was Pat. To Christie, the cruel death of Muriel's best pal should have been a blessing. As being so bereft, most people would seek out a sympathetic ear of a trusted friend. But as familiar feelings of abandonment rose once again, being inconsolable, even by her boyfriend, Muriel retreated into solitude, and Christie was at a loss. But then again, tears can have terrible side effects on a person Plagued with a Qatar. It had to be a really clever murder, much cleverer than the first. It was my wide knowledge of medicine which made it possible for me to talk convincingly about sickness and disease. And she readily believed that I could cure her. And as promised, a few days later, for the first time in decades, Muriel Edie wouldn't feel pain, any more. On Saturday, the seventh of October, nineteen forty-four, after a tiring shift at Ultra Electrics, made all the more grueling as her throbbing head and painful sinuses had plagued her with weeks of fitful sleeps. Muriel dressed in a navy blue blouse, black shoes, a black artificial silk dress with a pink collar and a camel-coloured cloche coat. At 4pm, she left her Aunt Martha's house at 12 Roskill Road in Putney, saying,
3: I shan't be late.
2: She didn't say where she was going, or who she was meeting. She was never seen alive again. At a little after 5pm, having exited Ladbroke Grove tube station, Muriel took her usual route to Reggie's, the clump of her tired feet accompanied by her chorus of coughs, wheezes and sneezes. As she passed David Griffin's refreshment room, headed east along Lancaster Road, up St Mark's Road, and turned left into the dark dead end of Rillington Place. The street was pitch black as with each resident sticking to the strict wartime rules of the blackout. Every light was off, every curtain was closed, and every door was shut. And with any sound muffled by the distant thud of bombs and tube trains which thundered by, the street was empty and eerily silent. Knocking at Number ten, as the black door crept open a crack, Muriel was greeted by the slobbering drool, whimper, and occasional whittle of Reg's brown mongrel, Judy. But sadly, being up in Halifax to stay with her brother, tonight they wouldn't have the company of Ethel. So lighting the gaslight and taking her coat, with a fresh pot of tea brewing on the hob, Reg led Muriel along the thin drab hallway, past the front room with its loose creaky floorboards, The bedroom, with its once strangely stained sheets, and into the cosy kitchen, barely yards from the little back garden, where Ruth's decomposing corpse lay undiscovered. And soon, so would Muriel's. Over a cuppa, the two friends chatted, with Reg perched on a small round stool in front of the alcove, as Muriel reclined in the wooden deck chair, a grey blanket covering the five lengths of rope with a spare draped over the back. His plan? To repair it. With a reassuring smile, Reg placed into her hands a square glass jar six inches deep and wide, which his wife had used a few times prior to pickle fruit. Inside, instead of potted plums, sloshed a white liquid which smelled strongly of the reassuring whiff of Friars' menthol balsam. And with two crude holes drilled into the metal lid, into the right hole ran a two-metre length of rubber hose, starting in the depths of the white bubbling liquid and disappearing off towards the curtain by the slightly open kitchen window, whereas into the left hole was the short stubby end of a rubber hose through which Muriel would inhale. And so, as Muriel leaned over the square glass jar, having placed a large scarf over her head, Muriel breathed deeply, inhaling the minty bubbling vapours. Within a minute, with her sinuses clearing and her pain disappearing, Muriel felt different. But the long rubber hose wasn't there as a steady supply of fresh air from the open window, used to purify this special compound. Instead, Reg had connected the hose to the gas pipe. And with the strong, eggy smell of coal gas, disguised by the overpowering eucalyptus of the friar's balsam, as Muriel breathed deeper, her lungs slowly filled with carbon monoxide an invisible deadly gas, commonly known as the silent killer. Christie wasn't a heavy man, muscular or strong. So even the act of overpowering a small, weak girl like Ruth first had been a struggle. And yet, with no force or assault, just a little bit of trust and a lot of patience, he willingly rendered Muriel unconscious. And as she lay there, slumped in his deck chair, silent, still and passive, Reg strangled her with a length of rope. Once again, I experienced that quiet, peaceful thrill. I had no regrets. Only this time, his sordid deed wouldn't be disturbed by an urgent telegram as Ethel would be away for weeks. And as he dragged Muriel's lifeless corpse along the communal hallway and into the bedroom, over the next few hours, he would savour every moment of his long-awaited prize. As he fondled her slowly cooling breasts, caressed the curves of her stiffening body, and kissed her protruding purple tongue, which jutted from her ruptured, bloated face, as having wanted her for months. Now, her body was his. And unlike in his joyless, sexless marriage to a frumpy, baggy hag, for once, Reg had no problem getting or maintaining an erection as his lustful urges descended into necrophilia. The next night, her body was buried in the back garden of 10 Rillington Place with any identification destroyed and all possessions sold. And although a missing persons report was issued, hospital admissions were checked, and her details were tallied with any lists of unidentified body parts found during the aerial bombardments, Muriel would become just one of thousands of missing people who disappeared during wartime. And having been cruelly abandoned by fate, and a father in name only, Muriel had finally begun to live the good life that she truly deserved. But having dropped her guard to a trusted friend, simply so he could cure her guitar, the life of Muriel Amelia Edie was ended. I knew I wanted her, the Edie woman, but she were different from the others. You know quiet-like. So it had to be a really clever murder. Much cleverer than the first.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?
2: One of the most powerful words in the world is home. It's the place we all feel safe, secure, happy and comfortable. And no matter where we end up, it's where we all return to. Home can be anywhere. A country, a county, a town, a street, a house, a room, a bed or simply a state of mind. Where we're surrounded by the things we like and the people we love. Often called a family. A family can be anyone, parents, siblings, offspring, friends, colleagues or neighbours, a network, a group or a single person. As family is not about blood ties or lineage, it's about trust. And for all of us, no matter who we are or what our life becomes, we all seek a family and a home. By 1949, the Second World War was over and although it is said that the Allies won, in truth, we had all lost, with millions dead, countries in ruins, homes destroyed and families shattered. The Blitz was now a distant memory. The blackout was off, and with thousands of the city's civilians missing, although many were still mourned, some were forgotten. Two of those missing were an Austrian refugee called Ruth First and an East London orphan called Muriel Edie, And having been strangled and raped by an unassuming little man called John Reginald Halliday Christie, their bodies lay undisturbed in two shallow graves in a small back garden in Ladbroke Grove. The deaths weren't deemed suspicious, murder was never mentioned, and with no witnesses, sightings And with no one suspecting him, his killing spree had stopped. Reg Christie hadn't killed in five years. It was almost as if those old strange urges had gone. But all that changed in the spring of 1949, when the second floor flat became vacant, and in need of a good home and a loving family, his next victim walked into 10 Rillington Place. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspectives. So what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. And I present to you part three with a full, true and untold story of the other side of 10 Rillington Place. Today I'm standing on St Mark's Road in Labrook Grove, a street vital to our story, but after decades of haphazard redevelopment, only a few fragments of these key locations still exist. One street east is what remains of David Griffin's refreshment room and the Kensington Park Hotel, but on this street alone, number 11 St Mark's Road was demolished. Number 133 St Mark's Road was rebuilt, and the side street, formerly known as Rillington Place, has been completely eviscerated. It's a classic example of post war inner city design, where a cash strapped council with homes to build but no plan, money, or map dumps a jumbled mishmash of architectural monstrosities onto a grid and says, Yeah, that'll do so with no grassland, ponds or parks. To the game. Having nowhere to play, from every bedroom echoes the incessant bleep of games consoles as rows of portly, pasty prepubescents enter a fantasy world where they imagine what it's like to stand up, to move and even to talk. Wow! Game
1: over.
2: Except once a day, as each parent pushes their unsightly waddling sprog into the street to burn off a delightful tea of pot noodle, chicken dippers and blue fizzy drink. And as the fat pasty spawn, waddles into reality, winces at the sight of natural light and wheezes because they're upright. Having been told to,
3: Get away from your bloody computer!
2: They stare at their bike, wondering where to plug it in. Their football... Searching for how to turn it on. And their legs, querying who ordered them and how they can get a refund. Only to huff, grunt, fart and start playing with their phones. Heads down, eyes open, world gone. But to be honest, that could be a description of literally anywhere. And although some of the sites are still here, with 10 Rillington Place now a memorial garden, and the skyline overshadowed by the blackened shell of the Grenfell Tower, where 72 people lost their lives. This whole street is tinged with sadness and tragedy. And yet, it was here, in the spring of 1949, that 19-year-old Beryl Thorley believed she had found herself a good home A loving family and a kindly neighbour. Beryl Susanna Thorley was born on the 19th of September 1929 in Lewisham Hospital, South London, to William, a petrol pump attendant, and Elizabeth, a housekeeper. Raised during the Great Depression, as the stock markets crashed, Currencies devalued and the world descended into economic chaos. Being a middle-aged working-class couple living a hand-to-mouth existence in a tiny rented flat, this probably wasn't the best time to start a family. And yet, even though the Thorleys had three children in very quick succession, they lived an unremarkable life, with no highs nor lows, no joys nor tragedies just the ordinary struggles of a very average family. Barely keeping their heads above water, from year to year, the Thorleys plodded on, moving from job to job, flat to flat and bill to bill, with nowhere really to call home. And lacking any real warmth, love or affection, only the tired routine of meals, baths and bedtime, they didn't feel like a family. As the oldest of three, although Beryl was a pretty petite girl, with bright twinkly eyes, soft fair hair, a button nose and an angelic smile, being eager to regain her rightful place as the baby of the family, having been usurped by her baby brother Basil and swiftly shoved aside by little sister Patricia, Beryl's beauty belied a stroppy temper, an awkward stubbornness and a childlike immaturity having uprooted several times in as many years, from Lewisham to Clapham to Hammersmith. As war was declared, the Thorleys moved into the top-floor flat of 112 Cambridge Gardens in Ladbroke Grove, just off St Mark's Road, and situated on the other side of the tube line, opposite Rillington Place. So except for their daily disputes, sibling rivalry, and the dull thud as Nazi bombs pockmarked the city, life was pretty uneventful. That is, until the late winter of 1947, when Beryl's mother passed away. It was a tragedy which split the fractured family even further, and with her siblings packing up and her father moving to Brighton, where he would remain like a distant relative for the rest of her life. With no home, no family, and being in the grip of grief, Beryl's life could have collapsed. But a few months prior, 17-year-old Beryl Thorley had met and fallen in love with 22-year-old Timothy Evans, a small, handsome Welshman with a thick mop of dark hair a childish sense of fun, a very vivid imagination, a steady job as a lorry driver, and a deep desire to become a good dad. And in a whirlwind romance, having met on a blind date in January, become engaged by March, and having tied the knot in September, shortly afterwards, the newly married Beryl Evans moved in with her husband Tim into his mother's three-story townhouse at nearby 11 St Mark's Road. Surrounded by a loving family, with Thomasina, his mother, treating her like a daughter, Penry, his stepfather, protecting her like she was his own, being blessed with two sisters-in-law, Eleanor and Mary, and a close extended family, including Uncle Cornelius and Auntie Violet. Within the year, Beryl had a family... A husband, a home, and was blissfully happy. It had been a cold, cruel winter, and with the snowdrops shriveled and the daffodils struggling, Ridge's much-loved rose bush was little more than a tangle of dead vines and jagged thorns. His back garden didn't provide much privacy or space being just 12 feet long by 10 feet wide, with a five-foot brick wall on both sides and surrounded by two long lines of terraced houses, but as a little dot of bright colour on a drab grey landscape. This was his sanctuary. With Judy doing some digging of her own, as Reg dug his spade into the hard soil, he winced. The 51-year-old's back was riddled with fibrositis. And with his stomach plagued by daily bouts of diarrhoea, he'd given up driving for ultra-electrics and was now a desk-bound clerk at the post office savings bank. As he exhaled painfully, Rich pulled from the soil a milky white stick. All smooth, like it had been stripped of bark, but it was oddly broken and brittle. As Ethel exited the wash house, she mumbled, Tease up, Rich. But he barely heard her. Instead he just nodded, staring at the stick, perplexed. Something was missing from Reggie's life. He loved his garden, he liked his dog, his job was tolerable, and his marriage was... fine. But nothing excited him anymore. It was as if something inside him had died. As Reg stroked the bone-white stick in his hand, a flash of recollection widened his eyes. Being eager to please her master, as Judy burrowed deeper into the soil, she too unearthed something pale, brittle and broken. But times had changed. The war was over and Reg hadn't killed in almost five years. The newlywed Mrs. Beryl Evans lived at Tim's mother's house at number 11 St. Marks Road for one and a half years. With it being a busy family home, with a mum, a dad, two sisters, Beryl and Tim, and two tenants on the top floor, although they lived comfortably, For a lusty young lad with a blushing new bride, it lacked privacy. But for now, it was enough. Beryl and Tim were very much kindred spirits. Being small, pretty and fun, they bonded quickly. But just like Beryl, Tim's sweetness belied a stroppy temper, a stubbornness and a childlike immaturity. And with both lovebirds being tetchy and fiery with their fights formed of feet stamped, things thrown, and a few choice words, they both gave as good as they got. So the only friction was caused as Tim's mum would always take Beryl's side in any dispute, branding her own son a terrible liar. By all accounts, Beryl and Tim were just a very normal couple of young kids, who were recently married, testing the waters and finding their feet, in a family which was about to expand. On the 14th of October 1948, in the Queen Charlotte Hospital, Beryl gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. A tiny tot with sparkling eyes, rosy cheeks, and a hot temper. And just like her parents, she was a little handful. But to Beryl and Tim, she was perfect. And with their family complete, they named her Geraldine. Being showered with gifts, love and the support of an extended family, Geraldine had everything and with two proud and doting parents to cuddle her, life was good. But as the baby grew, the small back bedroom seemed to shrink, so needing more space, Beryl and Tim began looking for a flat of their own. With the sky bruised, clouds looming, and the distant rumble of thunder, Reg stood in his back garden, clutching the milky white skull of Muriel Edie. Reg was in a real quandary. For safety's sake, he knew that he should either bury it, smash it, or burn it. And although half a length of her thigh bone neatly propped up his broken fence, that could be easily mistaken for a stick whereas a skull is a skull. Reg knew he had to make the right choice. And besides, he didn't need those urges. And as a tube train thundered by, seated by the window, Joan Vincent spotted an advert in a second-floor window. It simply read, Flat to let." Fortuitously, it was cheap, local, and would perfectly suit her old school friend and their new baby. The flat was at 10 Tenrillington Place. On the 24th of March 1949, with her bags packed, spirits high, and a new furniture set paid for by Thomasina, Beryl, Tim and Geraldine moved into their first flat on the second floor of 10 Rillington Place. It wasn't a great flat, as the stairs were a nightmare to navigate with the pram. It was heated and lit by gas only, and having just a bedroom and a kitchen, the only bathroom was a communal washhouse and lavatory out back. But with a rent of just 12 shillings a week, Being located one minute from Thomasina, and with the other tenants being an elderly widower on the first floor called Mr. Kitchener and a lovely couple on the ground floor called Mr. and Mrs. Christie, keen for their own space, Beryl snapped it up and her family home was complete. Beryl and Tim liked the Christie's. They were old-fashioned. As a portly lady in her early fifties, Ethel Christie was a neat, quiet homebody who lived in her husband's shadow. And although she was clearly loving, warm and deeply maternal, with no children of her own, Ethel's eyes only lit up when Beryl let her hold the baby. And with Reg having a fatherly quality, who was kind, caring and patient, having been an ex-special constable, an injured war hero, and with a wide knowledge of medicine, she knew that Reg was experienced, trusted, and knowledgeable. For Beryl, having the Christie's nearby was like being blessed with a second set of parents. For the first few months, as a new mum and dad, life was a struggle. But with Thomasina just one street away, the Christie's only two floors down, And although Tim was burdened by a low IQ, a bad lung, a disabled foot, and being almost totally illiterate, with money coming in, for a while, they coped. But being kindred spirits, what brought Beryl and Tim together also drove them apart. As having stroppy tempers, an awkward stubbornness, and a childlike immaturity, with Tim being a terrible liar and Beryl still acting like the baby of the house, even though she now had a baby of her own. Neither of them were grown ups. Instead, they were just children, trapped in an adult's world. On the 11th of July 1949, Tim started work as a delivery driver for Continental Wine House in Edgware Road on the modest wage of £7 per week. But having falsely claimed that Geraldine was gravely ill, he asked for £3 in advance, £7 to cover a doctor's bill, and a further loan of £10, all in just two weeks. And with his employer regarding his work as unsatisfactory, by the 25th, Tim was sacked, and he didn't tell Beryl. Being secretly unemployed for several weeks, Tim kept up the pretense. And as the bills piled up, never once did he miss a boozy session with the boys at the Kensington Park Hotel, known as KPH. And yet, he always lost his temper if Beryl had a night out with the girls, and left him at home with a baby. Feeling shut in, lonely and desperate, as Beryl struggled with the demands of motherhood, the dirty dishes piled up, the meals went uncooked, and the flat became squalid. And although she wasn't a bad mum, being so depressed, although Thomasina would always babysit on Saturdays, it wasn't just to give Beryl a break, but as an excuse to give Geraldine a much-needed bath and to wash her clothes. With money tight, Beryl feeling low, and Tim due to start a well-paying managerial job at de Havilland's Airlines in Hatfield, 20 miles north of London. On Friday the 19th of August, they took in a lodger, 17-year-old Lucy Endicott, who provided a little extra income and kept Beryl company whilst Tim was away. So with his best suit cleaned, a fresh shirt ironed, his shoes polished and his suitcase packed. Being ready to leave on the early morning train, Tim slept by the kitchen fire whilst Beryl and Lucy slept in the bedroom with Geraldine in the cot. But the next night, Tim returned. As always, Thomasina was right. And Beryl's instincts were spot on. Tim was a terrible liar. And having telephoned to Havilands, they quickly confirmed that there was no job, no wage, and no record of a Timothy Evans. One week later, on the evening of Sunday, the twenty-eighth of August, having been out to the cinema, as Beryl and Lucy hopped off the bus stood outside of the KPH public house, they saw Tim waiting. Their bitter screams echoed all the way down Lancaster Road, St Mark's Road and right into Rillington Place. With every house light turning on as Tim snapped, I'll
3: give you a good hiding for going to the pictures and leaving the baby.
2: Each curtain twitching as Bevel barked, I told you I was going out! and every wireless silenced as Tim spat,
3: It doesn't make any difference. Your place is at home. Just you wait till I get you inside. As he slammed
2: the front door shut of 10 Rillington Place. And once again, the neighbouring streets retreated to yet another furious fight between the Evanses. In the preceding trial, the following incident was reported to the police as witnessed by Mrs. Hyde on Lancaster Road, Mrs. Swan at 9 Rillington Place, and the Christie's on the ground floor. Gone were their petty childish squabbles and their tit-for-tat tantrums, as with the Evans' relationship irrevocably split, their silly spats had descended into physical assaults, And as Tim slapped Beryl's face, hollering, I'll bloody do you in, I will. Beryl grabbed a bread knife. To protect himself, seeing how Beryl was precariously perched, Tim screamed, I'll push you through the bloody window. Only for Lucy to trip up the hot-tempered Tim, as he threatened her, squealing,
3: I'll smash it up. I'll run over in my van.
2: Thankfully, before anyone was badly hurt, the fight was broken up by Thomasina. Lucy was asked to leave, Tim called off, Beryl calmed down, and a full statement was made to the police. The next day, Beryl told my wife she was going to get a separation. My wife and I agreed that if she needed us to, we would adopt the baby. It was then, at a later date, that Beryl told me she was going to make an end of it. In short she was going to commit suicide. With her relationship straining at the seams, being riddled with debts, jealousy and lies, and devoid of love, trust or patience, the more Tim slugged back the drink, the further Beryl fell into depression. And yet, life was about to throw the struggling couple yet another curveball. As Beryl, was pregnant, But Beryl didn't want another baby, confiding in her old friend Joan Vincent that she wanted to miscarry, as old-fashioned methods like punching herself in the stomach, necking neat gin and overdosing on laxatives all failed. Beryl risked her life even further by swallowing poisons like quinine and ergot, syringing herself with glycerin and iodine and trying to hook the tiny fetus out using a bent coat hanger. With each attempt having failed, as the unwanted baby slowly grew inside her, Beryl Evans became more sickly, pale and withdrawn. And then, on Monday the 7th of November 1949, I went upstairs and found Mrs Evans in the kitchen lying on a quilt in front of the fireplace. She had made an attempt to gas herself from a gas pipe on the side of the fireplace and a piece of rubber tube in near her head. And when I opened the window, she started coming round. I don't know what she said, but a little while after, she complained of a headache, so I made her a cup of tea. My wife was downstairs, but I didn't tell her. Mrs. Evans asked me not to. The next day, on Tuesday, the 8th of November 1949, I went upstairs again. She still intended to do away with herself and begged me to help her. She said she would do anything if I agreed. I think she was referring to letting me be intimate with her. She brought the quilt from the bedroom and put it down in front of the fireplace. I turned on the gas tap and as near as I can make out I held it close to her face. When she became unconscious I turned the tap off. I got on my knees but I found I was not physically capable of having intercourse with her owing to my fibrositis and my dicky-dummy. Tim came home about six o'clock I spoke to him in the passage and I told him that his wife had committed suicide and that she had gassed herself. We went into his kitchen and he touched his wife's hand. I told Evans that no doubt he would be suspected of having done it because of the rows and fights he had had with his wife. He seemed to think the same. He said he would bring his van down and leave her somewhere. Having quit his job, sold his furniture, gone into hiding, and repeatedly lied to his family about his wife's whereabouts. On the 30th of November, 1949, Tim confessed to disposing of Beryl. And with her body being found just three days later, on the 13th of January, 1950, faced with overwhelming evidence against him, Timothy John Evans was found guilty of murder. Beryl was a pretty, petite, but painfully immature young girl from a fractured upbringing who dreamed of nothing but a good home and a loving family. And having got everything she ever wanted, aged just 20 years old, Beryl Susanna Evans was buried in a simple coffin at Gunnersbury Cemetery. Except, inside her coffin, Beryl wasn't alone. Thank you. lies. We all hear lies, tell lies, and deny that we lie. And yet there's very little difference between a truth and a lie. As just like a truth, a lie is just a very subtle shift in one person's perspective, used to protect ourselves or others from the truth. So really, one person's truth is just another person's lie. But then again, There's no such thing as the truth. It can never exist, as every single sentence, word or syllable we utter is riddled with a carefully calculated degree of emphasis, bias and belief, all of which is unconsciously rearranged and re-edited to suit our own needs, goals and opinions. Fibs, untruths and little white lies are part of our daily vocabulary. It's the difference between a person who is dull, poetic, creative, or a visionary, with a very fine line between what is fantasy and reality. Lies are harmless, fibs are fun, and everything we say is spun. But the second that lying becomes second nature, and the fantasist begins to believe their own lies as the truth, those lies can become deadly. On the 8th of November 1949, following a series of failed abortion attempts and in a fit of depression, 20-year-old pregnant mother of one, Beryl Evans, committed suicide by gassing herself. Fearing this suspicion would fall upon her abusive husband, a heavy drinker, a terrible liar, and a known fantasist whose fiery bus stops with his wife had been reported to the police, Timothy Evans destroyed any evidence, packed up, moved out and fled, knowing that he would be blamed for her death. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspective. So what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and I present to you part four of the full True and untold story of the other side of Tenrillington Place. Today, I'm standing outside of the Kensington Park Hotel at 139 Ladbroke Grove, directly opposite what was David Griffin's refreshment room, and one street east of the Thorley's family home at 112 Cambridge Gardens, Tim's mum's house at number 11 St Mark's Road and the final flat of Beryl and Tim Evans on the second floor of 10 Rillington Place. Built in 1866 is a purpose-built public house. The KPH is an eye-wateringly beautiful four-storey British boozer with a rich wood-panelled facade, a twin saloon door and an oil-burning lantern on the outside with the inside thick with traditional period details like brass fittings, ornate pillars, molded cornices, bottle balustrades, a central bar island, and fitted out with a luncheon room, a billiard hall, a theater, and as created in 1929, a discreet ablution facility for the ladies. And as one of London's oldest live music venues, where Welsh crooner Tom Jones played his first city gig, punk band The Clash hung out. Notorious fascist Oswald Mosley staged his ill-fated 1958 election bid, and where, it is rumoured, a small, softly-spoken serial killer once served behind the bar. The KPH is a great pub, where generations of legends have sat, supped pints, and spouted bullshit about sport. Sadly it's now boarded up, as the £3.2 million property is about to be turned into yet another bloody gastro pub. Where bearded dickheads in dungarees swig pints the size of thimbles, smarmy gits in red trousers, quaff vegan fry-ups served on a coal miner's shovel, and tosspots in tiny hats, pose for selfies in front of their Ponzi Dindins, tweeting about how amaze balls it is, even though it's just a piece of toast drenched in oil, slopped with hummus, and smeared in ava cardo. Instead of remaining a good, honest, local pub frequented by salt-of-the-earth heroes. Uh, better out than in. And yet, it was here, in the autumn of 1949, that over a few pints, 24-year-old Timothy Evans would regale his chums with a stream of rather fanciful stories, but having forgotten how to tell the truth, his impulse to lie would cost him his life. On Wednesday, the thirtieth of November, nineteen forty-nine, at three ten p.m., in the sleepy Welsh village of Mirth Vale, a tired and dishevelled Timothy Evans entered the local police station, stating, I want to give myself up. I have disposed of my wife. Taken aback, Detective Constable Glynfren Evans asked, Do
3: you realise what you're saying, sir? To which Evans replied, Yes, I know what I'm saying. I can't sleep. I want to get it off my chest.
2: And over the next two hours, he gave the following statement.
3: October time? My wife Beryl told me that she was about 3 months gone. I said another won't make any difference. She told me she was going to get rid of it. I told her not to be silly that she would make herself ill. On the Monday morning she told me if she couldn't get rid of the baby that she'd kill herself and our baby Geludine. I told her she was talking silly. I then went to work, loaded up my van and I went on my way. That morning, I pulled up to a cafe between Ipswich and Colchester. I can't say exactly where. I ordered a tea, and there was a man sitting opposite me. He said, you look well-it, so I told him about it. He said, oh don't worry, I can give you something to fix that, and he handed me a little bottle wrapped in brown paper. He said, tell your wife to take it first thing in the morning, and then lay down for a couple of hours. He never asked any money for it. I paid my bill and went on my way. When I got home, my wife found the bottle. But I I told her not to take the stuff. The next evening, after work, I went home and I noticed there was no lights on. So I went into the bedroom to get a penny. I then saw my wife lying on the bed. I shook her. But she wasn't breathing. About one or two in the morning, I got my wife downstairs. I opened the front door to Ten Lillington Place, and I pushed her body headfirst into the drain. After that, I got my baby looked after, I quit my job, I'd sold my furniture, I told my mother that my wife and baby had gone on a holiday, and then I caught the train to Martha Vale, and I've been here ever since. And that's the lot!
2: In this statement, he would admit to aiding his wife's death, procuring an abortion, and the unlawful burial of her body. Two months later, Timothy John Evans would be charged with murder. It was a confession which would end his life, but the trouble had begun almost two decades earlier. Life for Timothy John Evans started badly even before he was born. Abandoned by his father, Daniel Evans, whilst Thomasina was still pregnant, Tim was a small, pale and sickly little boy, raised in a village full of burly men who hauled coal at the Merthyr vale colliery, and so he would always feel like an outcast born on the 20th of November 1924 at 50 Mount Pleasant, a tiny, two-story coal miners' cottage in a rural Welsh village on the banks of the River Taff. Tim's early life was a struggle, and with Thomasina being a single mother, times were hard. But being a strong, sturdy woman, living in a tight-knit community, with many families, like the Lynches, the Proberts and the Evanses, related by marriage or birth. She remarried, rebuilt her family, and just like at number 11, St Mark's Road, she gave her babies strength, love, and stability. And yet, she would always struggle with Tim, an unruly boy who life had cursed. Always being shorter, smaller, and weaker, Tim was mercifully bullied by the other boys, and having struggled to speak properly before the age of five, even his teachers saw him as a backwards child. At school, Tim wasn't a good scholar, as being slow-witted, hot-tempered, and easily duped by the older boys, he often got into trouble. And having an abnormal IQ of just 65 and the mental age of an 11-year-old. Being barely literate, Tim would struggle to read and write, choosing instead to dive into comic capers like the Beano and the Dandy, wild adventures like Boyzone, or fantasy sci-fi like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. But by the age of nine, Tim's limited education would be cut short. Whilst bathing in the river Taff, Tim impaled his big toe on a hidden shard of broken glass, a harmless boyhood injury which is easily repaired. But having bound his bloody foot in a dirty hanky, by the time Tim hobbled his way from Mount Pleasant to the doctor in the neighbouring village of Merthyr Vale, the small cut had gone septic and would leave him with a lifetime of sickness, absence, pain and a permanent limp. Later contracting tuberculosis, Tim spent a whole year isolated at the Moorland Clinic for Children in Hampshire, hundreds of miles away from his family. And being a small lonely boy with a low IQ, a bad lung, a disabled foot and a deep feeling of inferiority, being blessed with a vivid imagination, Tim began to twist the truth of his humdrum life into a fantasy world where he was rich, smart and successful. But lacking the intelligence to sustain such a bold story, even Tim's own mum branded him as a terrible liar. By the outbreak of World War II, eager for excitement, Tim tried to enlist in the armed forces, but was rejected from National Service on medical grounds. Aged 15, Tim worked as a van boy at the Merthyr vale Colliery, and by 17, he was a driver for the Air Ministry, having settled with his family at No. 11 St Mark's Road, but being regarded as unreliable, highly strung and a fiery liar with a string of bad debts. His work history was patchy, as he drifted from jobs as a coal haulier, a car cleaner ...and a factory worker. Being easily duped, in April 1946, Tim received two criminal convictions... ...one for driving an unlicensed car and one for receiving stolen goods. Both resulted in fines. And although his exasperated mother supported her unruly son... ...with a bed, money, meals and endless love, often being unemployed and always being broke, with no hobbies or interests to engage him. Every evening, over a few pints, as he propped up the bar at the Kensington Park Hotel, Tim would wax lyrical and regale the locals with tall tales and fanciful fibs of how he lived the life of a gigolo, how his absent father was an Italian count, and how his fictional brother owned a fleet of limousines. So with her patience wearing thin it must have seemed like a blessing for Thomasina when in 1947 her boy met and married a lovely girl called Beryl Thorley who later gave birth to a beautiful baby girl called Geraldine This should have been the makings of Tim as a grown-up and a man but with deceit coming a second nature having falsely claimed his daughter was gravely ill to acquire a loan, pretended he hadn't been sacked for three whole weeks to save on marital spats, and having kept up the pretense to his wife and lodger that he was starting a new career as a manager at de Havilland Airlines, a job which didn't even exist, Tim was a born liar who was incapable of the truth. By Monday, the 7th of November, 1949, with arguments being a daily event, debts stacking up, and Beryl feeling pale, weak, and depressed after several failed abortions. What the Evans needed was honesty. But Tim wasn't the only liar and fantasist living at 10 Rillington Place. The next day, Beryl told my wife she was going to get a separation. My wife and I agreed that, if she needed us to, we would adopt the baby. It was then, at a later date, that Beryl told me she was going to make an end of it. In short, she was going to commit suicide. After Beryl's death and Tim's arrest... Rich Christie made that statement to the police. Except none of it was true. On Monday, the 31st of October 1949, eight days before Beryl's death, Raymond Phillips and Frederick Jones of Larter and Sons were contracted to repair a leaky bay window and the roof of the communal wash house. It was a simple job undertaken during the weekdays, which shouldn't have disturbed the tenants. But with Ethel stuck at home, Beryl feeling blue, Geraldine all restless, and Reg off sick with fibrositis and bouts of diarrhoea, the constant banging and hammering had left 10 Rillington Place in total disarray. As the baby wailed the whole house down with a constant cacophony of tired tears, Beryl didn't hear his soft plimsolls as they slowly crept up the creaking stairs. Then again, she never did. But as Reg's egg-like head peeped around the open door, having an almost comical face with over-prescribed spectacles, slipping false teeth and a softly cooing voice which often soothed Geraldine, clutching two steamy mugs of tea, Reg cooed, I wondered if you fancied a cup of tea, dear. He did this most days, and with Beryl being alone, she appreciated his company, his chats and his friendship. Ridge could see Beryl wasn't her usual self. She was always such a pretty young girl, but with her flawless brow wrinkled by a deep frown, her smooth skin all sickly and pale, Her baby blue eyes, Red raw from crying, and her supple figure hidden by a shapeless mass of crumpled clothes. What the innocent 20 year old needed, Reg thought, was a father's love and protection. Over the eight months she'd lived there, Beryl and Reg had developed a good relationship. He was a very patient man who cared and listened and having pacified her hot-tempered husband after several of the couple's regular rows, covered the cost of their furniture fees to keep the bailiffs at bay, snapped a much-loved family portrait of mother and baby which hung on her wall, and being medically trained, Beryl knew that Reg was experienced, trusted, and best of all, knowledgeable. And as she opened up to him about her innermost secrets, about the arguments, the lies, the debts, her struggles with motherhood, her unexpected second pregnancy, and her several failed abortions, with the baby's termination being a tricky topic, and Beryl and Tim often at each other's throats, Reg agreed to speak to Tim on Beryl's behalf. And for the first time in weeks, Beryl smiled. It was my wide knowledge of medicine which made it possible for me to talk convincingly about sickness and disease. And she readily believed that I could cure her. That night, having finished his shift at nearby Lancaster Food Products, as promised... Reg had a man-to-man chat with Tim in the privacy of his front room, and being a boy whose dad had abandoned him before he was even born, Tim appreciated this fatherly advice. This was, after all, John Reginald Halliday Christie, a happily married man, 29 years to be precise, who for nine of those years had deserted his wife. A former special constable commended twice, having helped arrest a man who had stolen a bicycle. And a decorated war hero awarded the British War and Victory Medal, which every serving soldier received, regardless of their conduct. But then again, Tim didn't know any of that. So as Reg sat there, flanked by two framed medical certificates, and knowing that the barely literate Tim wouldn't know that they were only for first aid. As he thumbed through a thick medical book, and knowing that the easily duped Tim wouldn't know that it was only a St. John's Ambulance manual, and regaling him with tales of how his training as a doctor was cruelly cut short by the Great War, all of which was a lie. But then again, whereas Tim lacked the intelligence to maintain a story, Reg did not and claiming to have a wide knowledge of abortions, Reg coerced Tim into letting him perform a termination on his pretty petite wife. All the while, laying the blame squarely on the young couple and stating, If only you or your wife had come to me in the first place, I could have done this without any risk. And extending the cautious caveat that, given the risky procedure, One out of seven women die. Being physically tired, emotionally torn and with his brain thoroughly bamboozled, Tim said he would have to sleep on it. But being a young couple, unable to afford a new baby, they had only one option. And Christy knew that. On the morning of Tuesday, the 8th of November, 1949, after a restless night, Beryl and Tim washed, dressed, fed Geraldine, and as Tim sat at the kitchen table, having a smoke, he exhaled deeply and said, Tell Mr. Christie everything's okay. And although a great weight dropped off Beryl's shoulders, in those six simple words, Tim sealed the fate of their unborn baby and condemned them both to death. And as he kissed his wife goodbye, little did he know that this was the last time he would see her alive. After the chaos of the last eight days, with the bay window finally fixed, and the roof of the wash house replaced, with only one plasterer remaining, normality had been restored to Rillington Place. As Ethel dozed by the toasty fire, Reg rummaged through a small brown suitcase. It didn't contain much, just a few odd knick-knacks, like a necklace, a hairbrush, a stocking, a handbag, and a dog-eared photo of a young pretty girl holding a baby. And as he softly stroked her image, after eight months of patience and persistence, he imagined what it would be like to finally touch Beryl. It was 10.30am, and with Ethel asleep, Reg returned the suitcase under the sofa, having retrieved four little items. A length of rope, a bottle of Friar's balsam, two rubber hoses, and a square glass jar. For the last time, Beryl placed her baby in the cot for a mid-morning nap, tucked the soft sheet up to her chin and kissed her rosy cheeks. As always, Beryl didn't hear his soft plimsolls creep up the creaky stairs, or feel his hot breath on her neck as he lurked on the second floor landing. But seeing the reassuring smile, and hearing the soft voice of a trusted friend, who whispered, I thought you might like a cup of tea. Seeing Reg made Beryl's beautiful smile return. And as they entered the flat, so they wouldn't be disturbed, he locked the door. Beryl stood there, all hopeful and nervous, dressed in a blue woolen jacket with black stitching, a blue and white spotted cotton blouse and a black skirt. As she trembled, her heart thumping fast and hard. From her bedroom, Ridge pulled a thick quilt Laid it on the kitchen floor in front of the unlit fire, and with the bedside manner of a doctor, he said, Let's get you comfortable, shall we? As his patient, she was in his hands, and so trusting him implicitly, at his command, she slipped off her stockings, slid off her knickers, and lay on the quilt, her legs parted, her genitals exposed. Beside her, Reg popped the square glass jar. It sloshed with a white liquid, which smelled like the minty balm she would rub on her baby's chest whenever she was ill. This was all very strange and new to Beryl, but as he attached the long rubber hose to the copper pipe at the side of the fire, she trusted him. As Reg reassured her, "'Nothing to worry about, dear. "'It's just a whiff of gas. like going to the dentist.' and as he placed the shorter hose next to her nose, at his command, Beryl breathed deeply. And just like Miriel as her lungs filled with lethal levels of carbon monoxide, she would willingly render herself unconscious. And soon, Beryl Evans would be his, to grope, to kiss, to fondle, to fuck. Startled by the knocking, Reg froze. With Tim out at work, the lone plasterer by the washhouse, and Ethel in the front room, it could only be one other person, her friend, Joan Vincent. Bevel! But hoping she would leave, Reg remained still and silent. Bevel. Hearing her friend's voice, Beryl began to stir. In panic... Ridge smothered her lips with his rough hands, muffling her words.
3: Beryl,
0: are you there?
2: As her legs kicked, her arms flailed, and she frantically gasped for air. Before she could muster enough strength to scream, Ridge punched her hard in the face, knocking her out cold. Beryl, if you don't want to open the door, that's fine. And as Joan Vincent descended the creaky stairs... With both ends of his strangling rope clutched in his hands, Reg pulled tight, and the last drop of life left Beryl's body forever. With no privacy to do his dirty deed, as Joan chatted to Ethel just two floors below, Reg dragged Beryl's body into the unlit bedroom, and although her mouth and nose was bloodied, slowly forming a plan, he masked the long dark bruise around her neck with the top of the quilt, and left her in bed, just a few feet from Geraldine. On Wednesday the 30th of November 1949, at 3:10 pm, a tired and disheveled Timothy Evans walked into Merthavale Police Station and confessed to disposing of his wife's body, by stating, About 1 or 2 in
3: the morning, I opened the front door to Tender Lillington Place, and I pushed her body head first into the drain. After that, I got my baby looked after, I quit my job, I'd sold my furniture, I told my mother that my wife and baby had gone on a holiday, and then I caught the train to Martha Vale, and I've been here ever since, and that's the lot. But as
2: a regular drinker, an abusive husband, and a known fantasist, his heartfelt confession didn't ring true. And having lied to Thomasina that his wife and child were on holiday in Brighton, lied to Uncle Con and Auntie Vi that he was on a business trip to Wales, lied to a furniture dealer, a pawnbroker, and a rag trader about why he was selling all of his and his wife's possessions having lied to the Christie's about why they had so hastily moved out of Rillington Place, and having discovered Beryl's body, not down the drain, but hidden in the communal washhouse, bundled in a green tablecloth, and tied with a length of clothesline, with the autopsy confirming that no interference had taken place which was consistent with an abortion. Police knew that Timothy Evans had lied about his wife's death. As it was clear, the 20-year-old Beryl Evans had died by strangulation, and so had Geraldine Guilt. A powerful emotion triggered when we believe we have compromised a law, rule or moral code of our society or own standards, and in turn accept responsibility for that violation. Guilt guides our actions, our beliefs and our opinions. It protects us, binds us and shapes our lives. But just like a lie, being fueled by the heart and not the head, guilt can be subjective. So no matter what part a person has played in that violation, with their perceived level of guilt defined by their own emotional barometer, whatever the truth, blame can be shifted, roles twisted and reality distorted, to the point where the innocent feel truly responsible and the guilty remain blameless. Being complicit in the failure of his wife's abortion, her untimely death and her unlawful burial, Having destroyed evidence, lied and fled, and deeply missing his baby daughter, 24-year-old Timothy John Evans walked into Merthyr vale Police Station and made a confession. But with his statement littered with lies, his own words had protected the real culprit and condemned himself to death. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspectives. So what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile and I present to you part 5 of the full, true and untold story of the other side of 10 Rillington Place. Today, I am standing on Bartle Road W11, a residential side street just off St. Mark's Road in Ladbroke Grove. To my right is a long line of modern four-storey brown brick terraced houses. To my left are several lock-ups under the arches of the overhead tube line. Behind is the ominous shadow of the Grenfell Tower. And in front, just like it was in the 1940s, is a garage and a petrol station. Named after the Bartle James Ironworks, originally situated at its bottom end, Bartle Road was built in 1979, after the 1970s slum clearances saw many derelict Victorian houses demolished. Being new, this street isn't filled with blue plaques, which expose fascinating tidbits about semi-famous people who were once residents. Like at No. 7 Bruce Grove in Tottenham, where a plaque on the home of the famed meteorologist proudly lists him as Luke Howard, Namer of Clouds, at 48 Wellbeck Street, where Thomas Young is hailed simply as Man of Science, and at number 6 Wimpole Street, where noted surgeon Sir Frederick Treves lived. And yet, the plaque fails to mention that at that time, in that house, his lodger, was none other than Joseph Carey Merrick, infamously known as the Elephant Man. Some streets take pride in their history, whereas Bartle Road does not, and for good reason. As after the last resident left in 1971, and prior to its demolition, the street on which Bartle Road now stands was a dark and dreary dead end called Rushton Close which had been hastily renamed to disguise its infamous horrors, as this was originally Rillington Place. And although a few remnants of Reg Christie's beloved garden still exist at Numbers 26 and 29 St Andrew's Square, just one street behind, between Numbers 8 and 10 Bartle Road, there's an odd break in the terraced houses, as where Number 10 Rillington Place once stood sits a memorial garden, with no sign, no plaque and no shrine. As it was here, on the 2nd of December 1949, in the back garden of 10 Rillington Place, that the police would discover the decomposing bodies of two females. On Wednesday, the 30th of November 1949, at 6 pm, Detective Inspector George Jennings and Detective Sergeant James Black of Notting Hill Police Station searched the second floor flat at 10 Rillington Place. As expected, it was empty. No furniture, no clothes, no people. Just two suitcases, a pram, and a high chair, left in the safekeeping of the Christie's. Two hours after dusk, with the street full of giggling kids, gossiping neighbours, and with Reg eagerly watching from the doorway, outside of the ground-floor bay window of 10 Rillington Place, the police pried up a cast-iron manhole cover. And armed with flashlights, they peered inside, into the sewer. At 9pm, Detective Constable Evans commenced his interview of Timothy John Evans in Merthyrvale Police Station. And having heard back from the Notting Hill Police, he confronted Tim with what they had found down the drain. Nothing. The body of Beryl Evans wasn't there. And as Tim the Terrible Liar indignantly replied, Will I put her there? Being incapable of sustaining the story, as his lies unravelled, the detective
3: probed Tim further. Is it a manhole? I expect so. Who helped you lift it? I did it myself. But when faced with the stark reality that... Impossible. It took three officers to lift the cover off. As
2: he began to realise that he was digging his own grave, for the first time in a long while, Tim began to tell the truth. at 9.10 p.m., just four hours after his first confession, began the second confession of Timothy John Evans. And this is the nearest we'll ever get to the truth. On the evening of Tuesday, the 8th of November, 1949, having finished his shift as a van driver, Tim returned home to Rillington Place. As he pushed open the dark wooden door, beyond the oddly subdued greeting of Judy, at the far end of the drab grey hallway stood Reg, his bald head bowed, his hands behind his back. Eagerly, Tim asked, Will? But Reg didn't reply. Instead, taking a lengthy breath, he sighed and softly uttered, Go on upstairs, Tim. I'll follow you up. And as they ascended the stairs in silence... The only sounds heard were the slow creak of wood and a soft squeak of Reggie's plimsolls. Inside, the second floor flat was dark and empty. Nothing seemed out of place, and with the baby asleep in her cot, all that was missing was Beryl. So Tim asked again, Well? But this time, Reggie's face said it all. It's bad news, Tim. It didn't work. With the curtains drawn and the lights out, the bedroom was in darkness. But hearing his baby grizzling after a long nap, Geraldine's gurgling was reassuring as he lit the gas lamp. <laughs> Bathing the pokey room in a shadowy yellow flicker, Tim turned to see the small familiar shape of his wife. In bed, a quilt from her feet to her chin. betel he gently cooed to his sickly wife, but she didn't reply. Tim stroked her hand, thinking she was sleeping. But with the soft warmth of her delicate fingers, replaced by five frozen and rigid digits, Tim gulped, as he now knew that Bevel was dead. It was her stomach. Septic poisoning, we call it. From all those pills she was taking. Seeing his dead wife through a blur of tears, Tim tried to ask why her face was bloodied, But as his lips stuttered, there was no way that this feeble fantasist, with a childlike brain, could compete with his superior intellect. And as Reg reiterated, One in seven women die, I said. If only you or your wife had come to me in the first place, I could have done it without any risk. He led Tim to the kitchen, and away from the precisely positioned quilt, which disguised the bruise around Bevel's neck. And more importantly... Reg's guilt. As Tim's world collapsed, Reg stood beside him, offering his fatherly advice and a few home comforts. And as Reg brewed a tea on the hob, Tim cuddled Geraldine by the warmth of the fire. We have to go to the police, Tim pleaded. But being ready with his retort, Reg replied, The police? And tell them what? Ridge knew how to bait him. It wasn't difficult, as being such a simple lad, he was easily duped. And yet, without any hint of irony, Tim replied, I'll tell them the truth. A word which sounded strange as it spewed out of his mouth. Oh, Tim, who do you think the police will suspect? And it was true. As a heavy drinker with a fiery temper a string of bad debts and a criminal record. It was well known from Ladbroke Grove to Merthyr Vale that Tim was a terrible liar.
3: My father's an Italian count. I need a loan as my baby's grieve the ill. It's a managerial job at the Havilland. And with their regular rows, i bloody do you in, I will.
2: witnessed by every resident in Rillington Place,
3: I'll push you through the bloody window.
2: the most violent having occurred just two months earlier.
3: I'll smash it up. I'll run over in my van
2: They'll think he killed her during one of your fights. It's best that we make it look like she went away on a holiday. And as a Catholic, although the thought of hiding Beryl's body and depriving her of a church service, a burial and a grave made him physically sick. Well, that's the only thing we can do. Reg fired back with the clincher, which would prey on the simple boy's guilt. Otherwise, I'll get into trouble with the police. You wouldn't want that, would you? And in three short words, No, Mr. Christie. Reg took complete control of Tim. Instructed to look after the baby, having changed her nappy, Tim made her a cup of tea and a boiled egg. Being just 14 months old, as Geraldine hugged her stuffed rabbit, and her daddy dangled a set of dandy jinglers, hoping to distract her. She was blissfully unaware that her mum was dead. But from the bedroom, with a dull thump, Reg dragged her dead mother's corpse. With each heave and pull, Reg wheezed and panted, as he struggled to haul the lifeless body into the landing. She was only seven and a half stone, But being just a little fella himself, whose back played merry hell and whose dicky tummy often left him bog-bound, Beryl's body was a dead weight. Here, give us a hand, lad, Reg huffed. And dutifully, Tim did. Clutching her chilly ankles, as they carried her cadaver down to the currently vacant first-floor flat of Mr Kitchener, with Reg's arms flat over her chest, Rucking her blue woolen jacket right up to her neck, the strangulation scar was hidden. There, Beryl's body was dumped on the hard wooden floor, slumped in a crumpled heap like a bag of old rags. It didn't seem real. His wife was dead and he was to blame. But this wasn't one of Tim's fanciful tales, told to his pals over a few pints. This was reality, something Tim knew nothing about. Through stuttering sobs, Tim stammered, So where will you put her? Tim didn't want to know, but he knew he had to know. And although Reg's reply was oddly clinical and almost inhuman, I'll dispose of it down the drain. Tim said nothing. He just nodded, knowing Reg was right. You better go to bed now, and leave the rest to me, Reg said. And as he handed the distraught boy, the wedding ring he'd yanked off her stiff finger. There you are, lad. Sell it. Over the next few days, in a dizzy state of exhaustion and confusion,
3: Tim would do whatever Reg said. Mr. Christie said, the best thing you can do is to disappear. Get out of London somewhere. So I just said, all right. The next day, I woke up, fed and changed the baby, and I put her in a cot. I saw Christie before I went to work, and he told me that he would feed the baby during the day. I wanted to take the baby to my mother, but he said not to, as it would cause suspicion. He told me that he knew a young couple in East Acton who would look after her. That evening, Christie told me they'd be here in the morning. To take the baby and set to pack up some clothes for her, which I did. It consisted of two large suitcases full of baby clothes, her favourite
2: stuffed rabbit, a rag doll, and a set of dandy jinglers, as well as a pram and a high chair, which Reg promised to drop round to the couple later in the week. Being there last night together, as Tim sobbed by the warmth of the kitchen fire, he kissed and cuddled his baby daughter. Her skin was as soft as marshmallows, her rosy cheeks as bright as the pink woolen coat that she wore, and her smell was a familiar mix of milk and talc. And truly believing that he was doing the best for his baby, he hoped that someday he would see her again. Only he wouldn't. Under Reggie's instructions, over the next four days, Tim erased his and his family's existence. He quit his job at Lancaster Food Products, told his mother that his wife and child had gone on holiday to Brighton, sold his furniture to Robert Hookway for £40, including a three-piece oak suite, a kitchen table, a folding chair, a six-foot bed and even the lino off the floor. And having sliced up his wife's clothes and the quilt into strips, two anonymous bundles of assorted cloth were handed to the local rag merchant. By 1pm, on Monday the 14th of November, the second floor flat was bare and hollow. There was no hint that a family once lived there, no clue as to where they had gone, and no evidence that a murder had taken place. And with no reason to stay, Tim closed the door, never
3: to return to 10 Wellington Place. Christie asked me where I was going to go. I said, I didn't know. I then got my suitcase and took it up to Paddington and caught the 5 to 1 train to Cardiff. I got to Merthyr Vale about 20 to 7 in the morning. I went to Mount Pleasant and I've been there ever since.
2: Being back in this hometown of Merthyr Vale, Staying with his Uncle Con and auntie Vi at 93 Mount Pleasant, a few doors down from where he was born, and being surrounded by the lush green valleys, the soft bleat of sheep and the soothing trickle of the River Taff, everything felt reassuring and safe. But for the next two weeks, Tim wouldn't sleep. As every night he silently wept, his heart breaking for every day that he didn't see his baby daughter, his mind flashing with horrifying images of his dead wife and his soul crushed by the thought of her body dumped in a rat-infested sewer. And with Rich Christie no longer here to guide him, the feeble little lies of Timothy Evans started to unravel. With very little making sense and Tim struggling to remember which lie he had told to who, such as why he was in Wales, how long he was staying, why Beryl had walked out on him, why she had gone to stay with her father in Brighton, why she had left Geraldine with Thomasina, and why did he have his wife's wedding ring in his jacket pocket? With Tim growing ever more angry and evasive whenever Beryl was mentioned, Uncle Con telegrammed his mum. This was her reply. From Thomasina Probert to Cornelius and Violet Lynch Dear brother and sister, Well, Vi, I don't know what lies Tim has told you down there. I know nothing about them, as I have not seen him for three weeks, and I have not seen Bella and the baby for about a month. Tim came to tell me that Bella and the baby had gone to Brighton to see her father for a holiday. That is all I know about them. Ask Tim what he has done with all the rented furniture in his flat. You can tell him from me. I never want to see him again as long as I live. Shortly before this letter arrived, Uncle Con received a telegram from Beryl's father. In it, he confirmed that he had not seen his daughter or the baby for almost a year. And in that, Tim's lies collapsed. On Wednesday, the 30th of November 1949, in Merthyr vale police station, Tim made his first statement.
3: I want to give myself up. I have disposed of my wife. Claiming she had died, having taken some tablets.
2: A few hours later, with the drain checked, Beryl missing, and no
3: body found, Tim retracted his first statement and made a second. The only thing that's not true is the part about meeting the man in the cafe and disposing of my wife's body. All the rest is true. I said it to protect a man called Christie. But when interviewed, the ex-special constable stated,
2: I can't understand why Evans should make any accusations against me, as I have been really good to him in a lot of ways. It is very well known, locally, that he is a liar and my wife and i have expressed the opinion that we think he is a little bit mental on friday the 2nd of november 1949 as tim was transported to notting hill police station a full search was conducted at 10 Rillington place and with tim having stripped the flat bare sold the furniture cut up the clothes and the quilt told conflicting stories, sold his wife's wedding ring and left the Christie's with a high chair, a pram and two suitcases full of baby clothes to be delivered to a nice young couple in East Acton who neither Reg nor Ethel had ever heard of. Everything looked suspicious. And then, at 11.50am, in the recently repaired wash house, in the back garden of 10 Rillington Place. Having pulled aside a stash of wooden slats, left by the builders for the tenants to use as firewood, Detective Inspector Jennings and Detective Sergeant Black found what they thought was a large bag of old rotten laundry, stuffed under the porcelain sink and wedged against the brick wall.
3: I'll bloody do you in, I will.
2: Being two foot high, deep and wide, and weighing roughly seven and a half stone. As they dragged the hefty green bundle out onto the cold stone floor, the sack was dense and lumpy, with an ominous fetid stench, and having snipped the length of clothesline used to keep the green tablecloth tied. As it parted aside, they spied some clothes, a blue woolen jacket, a spotted cotton blouse and a black skirt.
3: I'll push you through the bloody window.
2: Inside lay the decomposing body of Bear 11s. Bent double, her knees tucked up to her chin, her breasts, thighs, and genitals exposed. With her upper lip, chin, and right eye bloodied and swollen, the pathologist concluded that she had been the victim of an assault with large fatty maggots having gnawed into her mouth and left breast. It was determined that she had been dead for at least three weeks. And with a series of deep abrasions to her throat, it was irrefutable that Beryl had been strangled.
3: I'll smash it up. I'll run over in my van.
2: Conducted by Dr Robert Teer, the post-mortem confirmed that with a a six-and-a-half-inch male fetus, found deceased in her uterus. At the time of her death, Beryl was 16 weeks pregnant. With no cuts or tears, it was clear that no abortion had taken place, and with deep bruising to her inner thighs, and with her paravarium ruptured. At some point before or after her death, Beryl had either been viciously kicked in the genitals, violated with a finger, or violently raped but behind the wooden door to the washhouse, crudely covered in timber slats and cruelly dumped on the dirty floor police found a second body smaller younger and still dressed in a pink woollen coat a flannel frock a white undervest and a white cotton nappy her tiny lifeless body was bloated and swollen. And with her lungs collapsed, her voice box crushed, and a man's blue tie with a red stripe, wound with sadistic tightness, which embedded an inch deep into her soft neck. Just like her mum beside her, 14-month-old Geraldine Evans had been strangled to death. At 9.45pm, on Friday the 2nd of December 1949, in Notting Hill Police Station, 24 year old Timothy John Evans was shown two piles of dirty clothes by Detective Inspector Jennings. One being worn by Beryl with the green tablecloth which bound her body, and the other a set of pink and white baby clothes as worn by Geraldine, and on top was the thin striped tie which had ended her life. Informed that both bodies were found in the wash house at the back of 10 Rillington Place. Detective Inspector
3: Jennings stated, I have reason to believe that you are responsible for these deaths. Is that correct? To which, being exhausted,
2: broken and crippled with guilt, Tim simply replied, Yes. As an emotional and exhausted boy with a low IQ and the mental age of a child, Having lost his grip on reality, that night, Tim would make his third statement
3: to the police, in which he confessed, She was incurring one debt after another, and I couldn't stand it any longer, so I strangled her with a piece of rope. Then I took her to the wash house after midnight. On Thursday evening, I come home, and I strangled my baby in the bedroom with my tie. And having signed his name, Confirming that the statement was accurate and true, with a guilty sigh, Tim stated, "It's a great relief to get it off my chest. I feel better already." On the eighth of December, nineteen
2: forty-nine, Beryl Suzanne Evans was buried in a simple coffin at Gunnersbury Cemetery. It was lined with flannel, padded with soft pillows, and between her legs. Draped in a lace shroud lay her baby daughter, Jevaldeen, and as her husband was arrested for the murders of his wife and child, Ridge Christie went back to his home and his wife at 10 Rillington Place.